0: In the middle of the first century AD, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. He said, you were called to freedom brothers only. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love uh, your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5, 13 and 14. Outside of what Christ did for us, I cannot think of a better example of this verse being lived out on a daily basis And the men and women who use their freedom as an opportunity to serve others by volunteering for military service. Going places most of us would never go. Doing things most of us would never do, often at the risk and expense of their own lives, so that the rest of us can continue to enjoy the life and freedoms that are available to us in this great country of ours. And so today we honor the men and women who have given of their freedom as we're approaching Veterans Day this week, We honor the men and women who have given of their freedom to defend ours, to protect our homes and our families and our way of life from those who would seek to destroy everything that we hold dear. If you're a veteran, would you please stand this morning and can we all give them a big hand for their sacrifice? Would you guys stand? We had about 25 uh, veterans in our first service. Apparently, they get up early. Uh, We have a small token of our gratitude for you guys today, and so if you are a veteran here and you didn't receive that just now, please see us afterwards as a thank you from us. It's a long tradition in this country, men and women volunteering for military service to protect and defend our way of life, the right to determine your own destiny as it has been described, a way of life that is Uh, easy to take for granted and to assume will always be there especially for those of us who have never known anything different And yet as we'll see today as we continue our sermon series working our way through the book of Revelation our destiny ultimately is not determined by the course this country takes politically socially morally or in any other manner our our, uh, destiny as a nation ultimately is not determined by our diversity or our economy or which uh, political parties in power or even how strong our military is or our status as a world power and listen personally your destiny is not ultimately tied to your past experiences your present abilities or your future achievements the fact is we give far too much weight to all of those things as determining where we end up as a nation and as individuals and Look, although those things certainly can and do affect our daily lives to one degree or another, for better or worse, our destiny personally and the destiny of this world is determined solely by the will of God for his people and our response to his will. His will, not ours, which means it's not even our desires the desires of righteous, God-fearing, Christ-following people that ultimately determines the fate of this world or the destiny of the people in it as we're going to see today. No, it is the sovereign will of God alone that was foreordained before the earth or any of us existed that determines the course of this world and what happens to us while we're in it as we respond either according to his will or according to ours. And the reason that matters is because everyone is trying to control the narrative today. And uh, a lot of that is according to our will, if we're being honest, not God's. Christians and non-Christians, Republicans and Democrats, environmentalists and industrialists, capitalists and socialists, pro-life and pro-choice, vegans and meat eaters, I mean, you, you name it. Just go down the list. Everyone is trying to control the narrative today to exert their influence on what life looks like in this country and where it ends up. Because we all have our own ideas about how this country should be run and what it's going to take to get us there, which is fine as long as we understand that anything we do, any energy we expend, any effort we engage in, any money we spend, anything we work toward that is not in line with the sovereign will of God, okay, no matter how honorable or worthwhile it may seem to be, if it is not in line with the will of God, it is a colossal waste of time and resources, both human and material, right? Because no matter what we think or what we say or what we do, no matter how passionate about it we may be or how right it may seem, if it's not God's will, it's all for nothing, and it matters because every year that goes by, hundreds of millions of dollars are being spent by individuals and churches and private agencies and government agencies and corporations along with countless man hours to try and make the world a better place whatever that looks like for you we are pouring untold resources into an untold number of efforts that if they're not in line with the will of god for this world are a complete waste of that time and those resources and again it matters Because whatever time we have left on this earth, don't you want to make it count? Don't you want it to matter, to really matter beyond how it makes you feel or how it affects you right now? This is why Jesus taught us that every time we pray, we should pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not our will be done. Because even our prayers, listen, we don't have time today to list all the scriptures that tell us when God doesn't listen or doesn't receive our prayers, when our prayers are rejected. Even our prayers can be unfruitful at best and a waste of time at worst if we're more concerned with what we want when we pray than we are with what he wants when we pray. And it's understand, it's not our, uh, that our desires don't matter. They do matter. In fact, they matter more to him than you can imagine. But if the focus of your prayers and your work and your relationships and your life in general, if the focus of all that is primarily on what you want to the exclusion of what God wants, then you're wasting the life he's given you. We're going to find that out. Today as John's vision of the throne room continues where the seven seals on the scroll that contains God's sovereign plan for this world are being broken and as that plan begins to unfold, we hear the voices of many different groups of people, both righteous and unrighteous people, calling out to God. They're all crying out to him, trying to exert their influence with him and his plan uh, for the fate of this world. And yet as we'll see, while some of those prayers have a profound effect on how and when his destiny unfolds for this world there are others even some well-meaning god-fearing people whose prayers have little to no effect because they're not in line with his plan with his will especially the timing of it and i'm just saying i don't want that for your life or for mine more than anything I want to make it count. I want my prayers, my effort, my work, my energy, my relationships, my focus, everything I'm spending my life doing here, I want it to count beyond just my life. I want it to matter after I'm gone to more people than just me. And I believe most of you do too, if not all of you. So let's pick the story up where we left off last time. And we'll cover probably the first two-thirds or so of the chapter today and what will be part one of this sermon, and then we'll finish this chapter next week, okay? So throughout the chapter today, we and next week, we hear all of these different voices, all focused on different things, all crying out to God, and as we'll see by the end of next week, some of them count, and some of them don't. Revelation chapter six, we'll begin with the first eight verses. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another and he was given a great sword. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. In chapter five, we were introduced to the scroll and the only one in all of creation who was found worthy to open the scroll. Of course, it's Jesus Christ. And in verse eight of that chapter, what precipitates the opening of the scroll is described. And when he had taken the scroll, The four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. If you ever wondered how powerful prayer actually is, consider the fact that chapter 5 says it is the prayers of the saints. That's you and me and believers all around the world that instigates the opening of the scroll, which is the beginning of the end of this age. The consummation of all human history as we know it. The final testing and judgment of all the earth. God's sovereign plan for the end of days is the answer to the prayers of Christians around the world. It's breathtaking to consider the power of our own prayers when we pray according to the will of God. Even, listen, even when the answers to those prayers may not be what we thought they would be or hoped they would be. So here in chapter 6, We begin to see the answer to those prayers as the first six seals to the scroll are broken, which parallels the trumpets in chapters eight and nine and the bowls in chapter 16, which we'll see in the coming weeks that represent judgments that Jesus said would characterize the present age in Mark 13, seven and eight. And with the first four seals of the scroll being opened come the four horsemen of the apocalypse, powerful images of four riders on different colored horses that meet out various judgments on the earth ushering in the tribulation and it's not the first time we're introduced to these ominous riders, as they're described actually in Zechariah chapters 1 and chapter 6 where they're sent out by God to patrol the earth but at that point are restrained from inflicting death through sword famine pestilence and wild beasts as we see here These are angels of judgment on horses with colors that correspond with their particular judgments. White for conquest, red for bloodshed, black for famine, and chloros in the ancient Greek, which literally means pale green, the color of death. Much has been made, by the way, about the identity of these four riders, particularly the first rider on the white horse. Some say it's an allusion to the Antichrist figure, Gog, in Ezekiel 1 through three. Others believe the rider on the white horse is Christ himself, preaching the gospel before the end in fulfillment of Matthew 24, 14. It's a position that was uh, first put out there by Irenaeus, the second, late second century church father. But in fact, there's no reason to complicate the explanation beyond the obvious, which is that these are angels of judgment sent out by God at the beginning of the end of this age. First of all... If you compare this description of the rider on the white horse to the description that clearly is Jesus Christ on a white horse in chapter 19, there's not much in common other than they're both on white horses. Furthermore, it doesn't make sense that Jesus who is opening the seals rides out after the first seal is broken, but then continues to open other seals on the scroll. And finally, and most convincingly, the repeated use of the phrase in this passage was given or were given when referring to what each of the writers was given it's didomi in the ancient greek which throughout revelation specifically refers to divine authorization that is granted to evil powers to carry out their nefarious work which would clearly not be a description of the christ So for our purposes, we're going to stick with the simplest and clearest explanation that these are angels of judgment inaugurating a period of tribulation that is being accomplished through human forces. And this is a really important distinction. Okay, These writers simply accelerate human depravity running its natural course on this earth. Remember what Jesus said, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, Matthew 24, 37. This is humankind setting themselves up in the place of God once again, just as they did in the days of Noah. And so in the Old Testament, the bow was a symbol of military power. God told the prophet Hosea that he would break Israel's bow in the Valley of Jezreel, Hosea 1, 5. Uh, The warriors of Babylon will be captured and their bows will be broken, Jeremiah 51, 56. And throughout scripture, of course, the crown, is a symbol of victory and so the rider on the white horse armed with a bow and given a crown rides forth to conquer symbolizing political and military leaders destabilizing quest to expand their realms leading to war which is nothing new right which leads to what bloodshed And of course, the red horse, the color of blood whose rider was given a great sword is the next to ride out, given authority to take peace from the earth with the result that warring armies were killing each other. It's the accelerated spread of war over the earth, which of course leads to great economic disruption. The rider on the black horse who carries scales for measuring grains and their prices, where we see here inflated grain prices. It's actually eight to 10 times the normal price. It's the siege and disruption of commercial routes producing scarcity and driving prices up. Does that sound familiar? I mean, just look at the effect on fuel and food prices and inflation that we're seeing today, just with the economic turmoil in our country and one war that's happening in another part of the world where disruption of commercial routes for shipping food and fuel and other goods is driving our prices right now through the roof. Now imagine the scale of disruption when 25% of the world is in the same situation. Be staggering. Interestingly, by the way, there's a voice from heaven that tells the rider on the black horse, do not harm. The oil and wine, which is a reference to local crops as opposed to wheat and barley, which were grown to feed the masses, which would suggest, among other things, wisdom in local communities and local neighborhoods and even individual families being able to produce their own food in times of political turmoil that leads to war on a massive scale that leads to worldwide famine, disease, and pestilence that inevitably leads to death on a massive scale the rider on the pale horse given authority to put to death a fourth of the world's population as Jesus describes in Matthew 24:21 for then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now political conquest followed by war followed by famine followed by widespread death just as we've seen over and over and over again throughout history, just never before on the scale described here in Revelation 6. All of a sudden, this book of prophecy doesn't seem so far-fetched, does it? Okay, this is a reality that we're not so far removed from today, and yet there is another reality that is probably even more sobering, which is the fact that all of this tribulation in the world is a direct answer to the prayers of the saints. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, the beginning of the end of this world as we know it, the consummation of human history on earth, the inauguration of the the tribulation is all a result of the breaking of the seals on the scroll, which is precipitated by the prayers of Christians around the world who are praying, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Probably not the outcome most of us are expecting when we pray that prayer. The question is, are you willing to pray it anyway? Because I'm far from convinced that we're, not making it, uh, that we're making it out of here before anything bad happens to us. I've told you before, I have no desire to be a martyr. And I hope I'm wrong about all of this. I want to be wrong. In fact, if we all get to heaven without a scratch, I'll be the first one to say I was wrong. I have no desire to be a martyr, but the fact is, Jesus not only does not promise to spare believers from suffering or martyrdom, he actually guarantees the opposite, that in this world, we, his followers, will have tribulation. John 16, 33, and as we'll see in just a few moments, he guarantees that many of us will be martyred. Look, Jesus never promised to spare us from tribulation in this world. What he did promise believers is that he would spare us from God's wrath and to transform our martyrdom into victory, which we find later in this chapter, as we'll see, and again in chapter 12, verse 11, among other places in Scripture. Because look, tribulation, troubles, suffering that this world brings to bear on Christians is not the same thing as God's wrath. Okay, when Jesus saves you, he's not saving you from your sin or from yourself or from the devil or from hell. He's saving you from the wrath of God. Look it up. It's all through his teaching. When Jesus saves you, he's saving you from the wrath of God, not the wrath of this world. Those are two very different things. As followers of Christ, we are guaranteed to be spared from the wrath of God, and we are guaranteed to experience the wrath of men. Remember what Jesus said back in chapter 3? I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. There would be no need to hold fast or to worry about anyone seizing your crown if there was no tribulation or persecution coming our way. He continues, the one who conquers. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. The one who conquers what? The tribulation, the pressure from this world to give in, to compromise, to avoid persecution and and the martyrdom that is promised to those who remain faithful. He's saying, stand firm as you have been already because the wrath of this world that you've been experiencing will continue and even increase until I come and take you out of this world and spare you from my wrath which is infinitely worse than anything we could ever face in this world. And then, to the one who conquers, he says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Look, uh, God is God. Regardless of what we ever do or don't do, God is exactly who he is, with or without us. You understand, God God doesn't actually need us. He doesn't need our love. He doesn't need our attention. He doesn't need our affection, our praise, our worship, or devotion. He doesn't need any of that. Of course, he wants all of that, but not because he needs all of that. He doesn't need any of that. The fact is, God needs nothing because he already is in and of himself perfectly complete. There's no lack in God. There's nothing missing, nothing partial, nothing yet to be fulfilled in him. He already is and always has been perfectly complete, needing nothing. And yet, we often live our lives as if God somehow needs our help being God. And the problem with that is, first of all, there's nothing you can ever do in your entire lifetime that is ever going to help God be more God than he already is. And secondly, when you live your life believing that God is relying on you to somehow help him be the kind of God this world needs, then you're elevating yourself to an impossible standard that you cannot live up to and were never intended to live up to, a standard that actually fosters a potentially costly misunderstanding of who God actually is and what he came to do in your life and in this world because you're taking on a role that is not yours to fill. And at the same time, whether you mean to or not, you're devaluing who God actually is, okay? God isn't like us. God isn't broken, or needy, or insufficient, or lacking in any way. There is nothing incomplete about God, and so the reason he invites us to be a part of what he's accomplishing in this world is for our sake, not his. He invites us into his story, not so that he can become who he needs to be, it's for us to become who we need to be. And yet because we're lacking in certain areas of our lives, Whether we realize it or not, we often project our own weaknesses onto God. There's a natural tendency for most of us to project our own human character traits onto God. We do it all the time and don't realize it. If you lean toward an authoritarian perspective when it comes to your own life, work, family, culture, church, whatever it is, then you will tend to view God as an authoritarian. If you tend to have a more socially or morally liberal viewpoint toward culture or humanity in general, then you will tend to view God as being more socially or morally liberal than other people do. People who carry anger around inside themselves all the time, if you ask them to describe God, whether they realize it or not, they will often describe a God who is angry, okay? People who feel helpless, hopeless all the time, by definition, whether they mean to or not, they often view God as unable to help them which is why they feel hopeless. We can go on and on here. The fact of the matter is people who believe in God tend to project their own human character traits onto God. Think about it, when's the last time you heard a highly liberal person describe God as being highly conservative? Or vice versa, how often do you hear socially or morally conservative people describing God as being socially or morally liberal? Okay, angry people typically don't describe God as being compassionate, benevolent, forgiving, and accepting, why? Because they're angry, and so they think God must be angry too. We tend to project our own human character traits onto God, and it skews our perspective of Him And what he actually came to do. And ultimately, if we're not careful, we can totally lose sight of the true essence of who God is. And what he's actually trying to accomplish in this world and in our lives. Because when we project our own human nature onto him, what we're doing is following something that is actually inferior to God. Something far less than God, to be blunt. We're following a version of ourselves. And the danger in doing that is not only our own misunderstanding of who God is and what he came to do, but it's also the fact that we're no longer pointing other people to God. We're pointing them back to ourselves. And nowhere is the danger of all that more pronounced than in difficult times. Because when human beings are subjected to considerable amounts of pressure, whatever's inside of them is what comes out. If you squeeze an orange, what comes out? Orange juice. If you squeeze a human being with enough pressure, whatever is inside of them is what's going to come out. The point is, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, what you're going to get is often not what you may want for yourself. So you better mean it when you pray it. Because his will often isn't our will, and what we want often isn't what he wants, as we're about to find out in the next few verses. Sometimes his will is anything but what you're expecting it to be. Are you willing to pray that prayer anyway? Even if it means hardship, persecution, suffering, tribulation, even martyrdom. Because you're going to have to if you want your life to count the way he meant for it to. Okay? If you want your prayers to be powerful, profoundly effective prayers, world-changing prayers, if you want to make your prayers count, Then pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, even when it means the answers to those prayers may not look like you want them to or think they should. Pray God's will be done anyway, and your prayers will change the world. That's how you make it count. Elizabeth Elliot once said, Prayer lays hold of God's plan and becomes the link between his will and its accomplishment on earth. Amazing things happen and we're given the privilege of being the channels of the Holy Spirit's prayer. Let's finish for today, verses nine through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told the to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Are you getting this? Are you paying attention? As the fifth seal is broken, John sees the souls of those who have been martyred killed for their faith in and testimony to the gospel, and they're crying out to Jesus, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So first of all, they recognize who's in control of what's happening on the earth, even in control of their own martyrdom as they refer to him as, oh, sovereign Lord. Furthermore, the fact that the souls of the martyrs were under the altar is another way of saying their untimely deaths on earth are, from God's perspective, a sacrifice on the altar of heaven. So make no mistake, this is God's will being expressed on earth through his people, by way of them being killed for their faith in him and their stand for the gospel of Christ. And their souls are crying out, Avenge us! Why are you allowing this persecution, this tribulation to continue against your people? We want you to judge them, to make them pay for what they've done. And of course, he's going to in due time their desires will be fulfilled their prayers will be answered but not yet not now not until his will is fully accomplished in his people first so he gives them each a white robe white robes in revelation are symbols of blessedness and purity and he tells them to wait 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 for your desires which are in line with his will. Wait for them to be fulfilled. Okay, this is the cry of the martyrs who are praying God's will, but not God's timing. Why? Because God is waiting until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Are you getting this? Are you paying attention? Jesus says, yes, my people will be victorious. Yes, I will avenge your blood that was innocently shed in this world, but I'm going to wait until after the rest of those who are destined for martyrdom are killed, not before. I want to be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Do you notice here? John sees nothing about a rapture of the church at this point in the story where Christians are spared tribulation. Tribulation, by the way, that normally accompanies a godly life, according to the Apostle Paul in Second Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. According to James, the brother of Jesus, in James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. According to the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4:12 and 13, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And of course, according to Jesus in John 16:33, in the world, you will have tribulation. Yes, Christians will be spared the wrath of God, but not the wrath of men. Those are two very different things, as Jesus and every other biblical writer makes clear. Which is not to say, by the way, that there isn't a rapture event. Certainly there is. That is clear in many New Testament passages, and we'll examine that in the coming weeks. But also clear is the fact that that hasn't happened yet at this point in the story. It's actually more in line with the sixth seal, which we'll see next week in the middle of the tribulation or before great tribulation where God's wrath is poured out. And so rather than escaping all trouble and hardship on this earth, believers in these last days will, as Eugene Boring puts it, ascend to heaven through suffering and death as Jesus did. Remember what Jesus said? Remember what the other writers said? We're going to share in his sufferings. We will ascend to heaven through suffering and death as Jesus did. They are not taken to heaven to escape the sufferings of earth, the wrath of men. Okay, as believers and followers of Christ, we are not going to suffer God's wrath. We will most certainly suffer the wrath of men as described right here in John's vision. And look, I would much rather teach you something you'd rather hear. I would, honestly, it would be a lot easier for me and a lot more popular for this church, but I have to answer for what I'm teaching you. And so I'm simply teaching you what his word says over and over and over and over and over again. In this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus told the martyrs, yes, I will avenge you after the last man dies. Not a minute before. We we can't stick our heads in the sand. And pretend we're not going to walk through tribulation on this earth at the hands of men and expect our lives to count the way he means for them too. We have to be prepared for what is coming for the church and what has always been a part of the life of the church, by the way, from the first century to the 21st century. We talked about it all the way back in chapter 1. The church has never in its history, the church has never been exempt from tribulation at any point in its history why do we think we will be it started when the church started all the way back in the first century it's been building ever since and will continue to until jesus returns after a period of tribulation at the hands of men as described in this vision which is not by the way a reason for us to despair first of all he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world first john 4 4 secondly we know the end of the story we get to be with jesus and each other in paradise a perfected world forever and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away revelation 21 4. thirdly we know that even in tribulation God is in control. The apostle Paul said, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. 1 Timothy six fifteen and 16. Eternal dominion, that means eternal sovereignty, eternal control. In other words, not only is God in control, he always has been and he always will be which means it's not a matter of whether or not God accomplishes his will in this world or in the lives of those who belong to him. It's a matter of timing. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. And finally, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28, which we talked about last week. So just think of it like this. God exists outside of space and time. He's not limited by space and time the way we are, right? We, we see time this way chronologically. God sees time this way. He sees it all at once. So before all of this ever existed, before God ever created all of this and all of us, he had a plan to create all of this and all of us. And not only did he know he was going to create you and everyone else before any of this was here, he also knew every single decision that every one of us would ever make long before any of this was ever here. Every decision, the good ones, the bad ones, and everyone in between. And so when he created his master plan for this world and for your life, he factored into that plan every single one of those decisions you would ever make long before you ever made even one of them, including every single decision everyone else would ever make that would affect your life as well which is how Paul was able to say that for God, uh, God works all things, not just the good things or the bad things or the big things or the little things, but all things together for the good for those who love God because God's plan for your life has every choice, every decision, every mistake, every triumph, every relationship, every illness, every circumstance and every situation you will ever face already factored into the outcome and he's working all of that together for your good doesn't mean it will all be easy or enjoyable or even understandable. Listen, sometimes we simply cannot understand why or when God does what he does, but we can absolutely trust in the fact that he is in control and that he's working all of it together, ultimately, for our good. And so in the end, it's not a matter of if, it's not a matter of if God is going to accomplish his will, in your life, on this earth. It's a matter of when. And I would argue that every day, even in the most difficult days, listen, even in tribulation, he's doing just that. He's accomplishing his will in his perfect timing, working all of it together, ultimately for your good, as he explains to these martyrs who are crying out to him. Okay, listen. uh, It's not like If we live into the tribulation in this generation, if that happens in our lifetime, it's not like God spun a big roulette wheel and it landed on us and he says, oh man, I don't know about these guys. Like I kind of wish it would have happened back in the first century guys because they really had it together. These guys are in trouble. No, God created us to be on this earth right now. He planned and designed for this generation to be here. So if it's us or the next or the next, if we have to walk through tribulation in this earth, it's because we were the ones specifically created and equipped to walk through it in victory. He'll give you everything you need if that happens in our lifetime, to walk through it in victory with joy. You understand? You're here when you're supposed to be here. He made the martyrs' lives count through tribulation and death. We'd be foolish to think that none of this applies to us today. Listen, the church in America isn't special. Sorry. In the last days we aren't going to be spared what the rest of the church around the world suffers but listen, we can be prepared for it and we can even rejoice in it because we know that through it all God is in control and because he's in control we know how the story ends. We just don't know when. So let's pray that his will is accomplished in us and in this world and leave the timing up to him and he'll make it count in his timing, not ours. Leonard Ravenhill once said, if a Christian is not having tribulation in the world, there's something wrong. Okay? Everyone is trying to control the narrative to exert their influence on what life looks like in this country and where it all ends up. Because we all have our own ideas about how this country should be run and what it's going to take to get us there, and that's fine, as long as we understand that anything we do The energy we expend, the effort we engage in, the money we spend, anything we work toward that is not in line with the sovereign will of God, no matter how honorable or worthwhile it may seem, if it is not in line with the will of God, it is a waste of time and resources, both human and material. Because no matter what we ever think or say or do, no matter how passionate about it we may be or how sincere or how right it may seem to us, if it's not God's will, it's all for nothing. And because we're not in control and we don't know God's timing, or we don't know how much time we have left on this earth, don't you want to make the time that you do have count? Don't you want it to matter, to really matter beyond just yourself? I do. I want my prayers, I want my effort, my work, my energy, my relationships, my focus, everything I'm spending my life down here doing, I want it to count beyond just my life. I want it to matter after I'm gone to more people than just me. And I know you do too. But listen, that's gonna mean all of us praying for God's will to be done on this earth and in our lives even and especially when his will is different than ours. And then it means accepting the consequences of those kinds of prayers and the timing of it all, trusting all the while that he's working all of it out for our good and his glory. You understand that's how our prayers become powerful. That's how our lives change the world. And we only have one shot at this, one opportunity to live the life he meant for us to live. Let's make it count. Let's pray.